Okay, we're going to start, but a couple questions. One, have you listened to the podcast before? Only the one that I saw live. Only the one you saw. Okay. So, but you went to one, which is yeah. bigger points to me. <laughs> this isn't, you saw the podcast. There's no gotcha element, but is there anything you want me to avoid or? I don't think so. Okay. The gotcha element. <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up and Clown, the podcast. I'm your host, Chad Damiani. Thank you for tuning in. We're a week removed from our what I'm imagining was a very successful November Stand Up and Clown show. I was particularly brilliant in that show. There will be reels on my Instagram that you can check it out. We have one more Stand Up and Clown coming up December 18th. As of this recording, we've got some really big names. Irene Two, Dana Gould, who's one of my personal comedy heroes. If you're listening for the first time, this podcast is inspired by that show, Stand Up and Clown, where I would bring stand-ups onto the stage, roast them, make them do clown work. This was all this surreptitious effort for me to bring stand-up fans to a clown show. And I decided, why not do a podcast that could reach even further? So hopefully you'll learn something about clown here, or if you're a diehard clown, you might get little tidbits from other artists that I consider clown-centric. We have a great backlog of interviews with people like Natalie Palomides, Puddles Pity Party, Brandon Board from YouTube, who I think is one of the best clowns working, even though it's in a completely different medium. Lastly, and this is also for the guest who's listening, this is a podcast about clowning, not a clowning podcast. We have no obligation to be funny, do bits. This is a deep dive into the work. Having said all that, I want to introduce our guest, a new friend of mine, Jim Woods. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. When we started the Zoom, you were popping some poses and you're looking great. <laughs> Thank you. You had a double bicep going for a second. I thought it really nice symmetry. You're really working on yourself. Congratulations. For the listeners, uh, I was just me. I, I was early to the pod, so I was just a visual of me in a Zoom room. And I just was looking at myself long enough that I was like, well, I'm just this me. Let's see the guns. Let's see them. And then as soon as I did it, poof. Chaz window popped out. I was like, wow. Yeah, I really thought you were yawning. <laughs> and just also thought you were shocked to be caught yawning, like, oh no, I, I look tired for the pod. But in fact, look, you don't think I put a gun show on every day, twice a day in this apartment? You me? I think it's so funny how like people do you do this if I'm taking a nap, or even if I'm just asleep at what is considered normal sleeping times, and someone calls. And I answer the phone and sound like I'm asleep. I will pretend I was not asleep. I will deny that I was asleep. Do you do that? I only do one of the two extremes, which is either I act very awake or if I'm annoyed, I act twice as tired as if they have woken me up. Well, I'm sorry. You don't know. Is this important? I was, I've been working my ass off. Called me when I was sleeping. You know, so I make a judgment call seeing who it is. So either it's like, oh, I want to look like I'm always on the ball or I want this person to feel bad. 
How do you currently identify artistically and comically? I would say I'm a comedian that these days mostly does improv and dabble in clown. I don't hear comedian too often, and I do actually like the ring of comedian. There's a workman-like quality to that word. You know what I mean? Like, this is my job. To me, the reason why is because I've done so much of sketch and did a lot of stand-up in Amsterdam. So, like, I've done, like, a lot. I, but I don't really do all of that that much anymore. You know what I mean? So I feel like I'm this comedian that has kind of just been like, you know what? This is just kind of what I'm focusing on now. But it feels too slight to just say, yeah, I'm an improviser. There's something that has a hobbyist quality to that word, which I don't think is fair. Because mm -hmm. there's people who have dedicated well past their 10,000 hours but there's something about the word improviser that when you hear it, it's, oh, you make stuff up. Well, I'll tell you what, my hinge profile does not say improv teacher. <laughs> <laughs> there's no Hopefully it doesn't say comedian who mostly does improv and dabbles in clowns. That would also be deaf. <laughs> when do you break it to them? Oh, boy. All right. So... <laughs> 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 I, I, this is embarrassing so alright so let's actually see what I would have it says your profile could use some love <laughs> writer actor at comedy okay that's good so, and that's true then basically like at some point I'll say oh you know but me and my friend Will we started our own improv school so that sounds more stable than I just am an improv teacher I teach improv Put the middies since my age bracket is, you know, 40s. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went the other direction again. Looks like we have a lot of opposing philosophies. I decided just to go with clown master. I just say I'm a clown master. That's yeah, a flex. That is. But that is. And though I'd say you are. I've seen you. Dude, you like hold court. You know, if anyone was to challenge that, I would say, go see him perform. Even when you are bombing, <laughs> you're holding court. Like, there's no, there at least no visible sweat. Honestly, and I've talked about it a little bit. It's just, you get to a certain age. So I'm 51. I'll be 52 later next year. I am the product of so many failed careers. I'm the product of losing a partner. You know, I went through two years of watching someone I cared about slowly pass away. I have a dog right now that is almost 14 years old and recently went blind. I think you just get to a point in your life where you're like, this does not matter. Right. The last time I felt like it mattered, I still laugh about it, is when I had my disastrous audition for America's Got Talent. And in this audition, a million things went wrong on the production side. But essentially, I was playing my security character. They wanted me to pretend to be real security. I ended up working a nine-hour security shift at America's Got Talent because they kept moving when I was going to come on stage. So I worked the whole day. And then when I got on stage, they had still put me on the call sheet as one of the contestants. So they immediately knew I was not a security guard. And even in that moment of just like, oh, my God, I have friends like Pith the Magic Dragon. I know other people who this has been the opportunity of their lifetime. Even in that moment of total disappointment, there was a part of me going, who fucking cares if you win? Who cares? This was an audience full of middle school children. 
This is something they don't talk about. America's Got Talent buses in middle schools. So that's who you're performing for. And I rallied and I still had a really fun time and I got booed off stage and Terry Crews tore my notebook in half and I scrambled knowing, by the way, none of it would be usable. At that moment, I was like, if this isn't the thing that tells me who gives a shit, I don't know what. (laughs) I don't know what. By the way, the next day I went in for a routine catheterization because I have a heart murmur and I ended up getting a surgical stint in my heart. I was like, oh, yeah, like. The universe is desperate to tell me not to take this seriously. Like they're they're going overtime to remind me to just relax. One of the funny things about saying you're a clown master to me is to me it's an inside joke, because a true clown master would be the most innocent and clueless of the clowns. So by being an authoritarian and in control, I almost play the opposite energy of clown. I just love that idea. Like a true master would go out there with nothing and just smile at the audience and have them in the palm of their hand for an hour. I love the idea of any art form that's rooted in failure, having someone who is an expert. I mean, well, I was about to say, like, right? I mean, from my dabbling, it seems that that actually sets itself up perfectly for, like, anyone who claims they're the top, that it's like, oh, I'm, I'm setting up so much room to fall. I'll say the same thing about improv. And for those of you listening who are clowns and who have not seen Jim Woods perform, and I don't want to embarrass you, you're one of my favorite improvisers, period. Like not, oh, someone I saw that's in my town. You have so much fun on stage. You're really joyful. You come off as very silly and playful, but you also have a really good mind for game and pattern. Like you are paying attention to everything, but there's an ease to it because it seems like you're just enjoying yourself. I feel like when people say, that's an improv master. I almost always feel like this is someone who overthinks it, overwrites it, has a way they think it should be done, and doesn't really accept that there are a million ways to sort of perform this art form. You're one of the most humble guys I know. I never hear you laud your accomplishments. You've been overseas. You have done just about everything in improv, I'd say, which I'm not saying that's a huge bar. (laughs) But yeah, you're running a school. You are definitely considered a master or an expert, but that is not how you present yourself at all. First of all, I mean, I, that's really that's really sweet of you. I I mean, I know this sounds obvious, but it's, it's fun. I I'm freer. I feel on stage than off stage. I at least I feel freer on stage than off stage. But what you're saying about the the overthinking and stuff. I'd been doing improv for about 15 years before I was put on a UCB Herald team, but I had not taken any UCB classes. And this is in 2000, end of 2005. Seth Morris, the AD, he was like, hey, we really want you to be on this team. I had to audition and everything, but after the audition, he's like, really want you to put you on this team, but we want you to take class. So I want you to take uh, Matt Besser's class. And I was like, okay, great. And it was it was the best improv class I'd ever taken because he put into words the way that my brain was already naturally working and I didn't know how to pull it all together. If you were to ask me before then, how do you do it? I'd have been like, hey, you know what? To be honest, I'm closing my eyes and swinging for the fences every time and thank God I'm funny. And that was the first time that it, I was able to like pull it together and now I could do it on purpose versus just being like, 
okay, here we go. And just kind of being in the moment. And so that was 2006. Cut to last year in September. So 2006 to 2022. Yeah. So 16 years, I take my first clown class and it was hard. <laughs> it was <laughs> because my brain has been in a certain mode for so long. It was constantly repairing the matrix with every word I said. So it was just a lot of rewiring. But what it did for me was it helped me see something I was also organically doing. This sounds so cheesy, but whereas before Besser taught me was happening in my head, these clown classes were helping me to teach that what I'm leading with from my heart. I didn't realize how empathetic of a or empathic of a performer I was until the clown class. And all of a sudden that was able for me, it opened my eyes to a different way of seeing the stage. And it opened my vocabulary to be able to tell people, this is also part of it. I went from overthinking to all of a sudden I don't have to think because my brain's so used to repairing the matrix to all of a sudden I have to allow myself to experience something that I was wanted to do, but didn't know how to open myself. Does that make sense? It does because one of the first times I saw you perform clown was at Public Displays Vaultadina. Great space in Altadena, run by Claire Wolner and Kevin Krieger. I'm not sure if you were a traffic cop, a police officer, but you were doing some kind of security authority. And I saw exactly what you're talking about in that you came out and you were beaming and the crowd was immediately like, we like you, we like you. And you were having a little fun. And then I literally saw you stiffen up and be like, oh, right, I'm doing this bit. And you lost them. Yeah. And you lost them instantly. It wasn't that they didn't like you anymore. Yeah. They were just like, oh, we're going to now not be as connected and we're going to passively and respectfully listen to this performer. And I remember just kind of laughing. I mean, it sounds like I'm such an asshole, but I was like, here we go. And I could see in your eyes. It wasn't that they, they did, weren't booing. They just were so hot. And then they all sat back on their hands and your eyes were darting left to right like, Okay. The energy was so good a second ago. And so you talking about this dichotomy, you have the cerebral player and then you have the somatic player. You have the person who's just in the moment, in their body, in the space. And then you have the other person who's able to step out and kind of see the lay of things and the patterns that are being created and finding that compromise or, or making them into a duo where they work together and generously work together and don't judge each other. Because that was one of the hardest things for me. When I really started to embrace clown, there was a period where it felt like I was choosing between the thinker and the player. It's funny, as you're saying, like there were moments like when you also see me learn in real time when Will and I did uh, Chad Live Directs and we started the first bit and it was, and you like, stop, you're doing, you guys, you're doing a theme. I was like, okay, yep, that's exactly what you, we're doing. And then we started again and it was like, basing off that information, I was like, okay, shifting. So we do that and it was better. And then way better. Yeah, way better. And then we come back and do the second one or like whatever, do a, that second part, new prompt. And it was now building off the information that I learned from the second piece. And then that one was the best. But it was just like, okay, like it's like, 
I'm in real time on stage learning <laughs> exactly what this is. You're so right. And I was going to bring that up. Watching you two, you just looked at each other. You came out. You were definitely doing a scene. The audience wasn't quite sure what to make of you. And when I roasted you, you just looked at each other. And it also, I think, really spoke to me about like, this is a real friendship. This is two people who work very well together, who like each other. Like, not just that we can get it done, but like, we're in this together. And you two crushed that night. You two were the best of the five duos, which pissed me off a little bit because you had the least amount of experience of any of the duos. This is a show I mentioned maybe every three podcasts as one of the most grueling live directs. Again, not for the audience. They were watching me at war with these clowns. All the clowns were misbehaving too much. They weren't really trying to get the audience to love them. And then the two veteran improvisers come in and they just simplify it and just listen. All they did was listen and crushed. You two, once you've gone on board with what was happening in the show and figured out my role and your role, that opened you up to take chances. So while the other clowns were just pulling out cheap tricks and trying their own stuff, you two were being calculated. Like you would raise your hands and I would say some sort of rhetorical question and you'd answer it. And I was like, oh, they're testing me. But in a way where they're respectful of the game, they're respectful that I'm the authority and they're just doing enough that it makes it hard for me to scold because it could be the right thing to do. And I was like, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. I want to be toppled as the authority by clever clowns that are playing within my rule set and essentially destroying the matrix from the inside. I don't like when people come out there and go, I'm going to bring a whole different show. It never works. And the audience is always like, well, you don't have the courage to play the game. Right. So when you two started like two buffoons, you just kept answering questions or asking questions. But very respectfully, I was like, this is what you do to sort of make someone like me furious in character. And I was really pleased. Did that affect you at all that show in terms of moving forward? I still find clowning with people, not just by myself, so hard. My brain is not fully figured out how to support in clown with improv. It's so easy to support. When people can't support an improv, I'm like, what's, what's happening? <laughs> like, like, like a, at bare minimum, just repeat what they're doing. You know what I mean? But like the clown, I just, I'm still, I still struggle of like, cause I really get so afraid of letting the other person down when I have to pair with someone I'm panicking. It was such a confidence boost for me, clown wax. To feel myself in real time figuring things out, it's kind of been a long time since I was on stage doing that. Most things were already kind of in my wheelhouse, and that isn't. That was like huge confidence boost. And then there was there was a moment in something that we did that was successful in the post scene failure that it was like, oh, okay. It was me realizing like what my role was. So that then in the, when we did the most successful one, I was able to identify my role faster and play the expectation role that I had. The biggest thing it gave me was the confidence to say yes to other clown things. A lot of the design of that show is creating rigidity because so much of clown feels like, let's just send these feral cats out on stage. I'm a huge believer in restriction. Because I feel like if you're in prison, for instance, we understand what a riot looks like. We understand all the rights you don't have. But if you're in the park with just a bunch of people in a drum circle, 
do we know when things have gone out of control? Like, do we even know what it's supposed to be? The reason that show is so formulaic and so methodical and has very clear, like you get two turns and this is what happens. And this is the order from best to worst is to allow someone like yourself to understand what they're breaking. You also, you talk about doing what you needed to do. And I just want to make it clear what you needed to do, which you did was less, but just more enthusiastically. Like you two just came out and really embraced very dumb, simple things and didn't feel the need to add more or like create a narrative within it. You just sat in it and let the audience love it or hate it. I actually had a guy named Frey, who is one of the house managers at the Elysian, really sweet guy. I know he's done a bunch of stand-up. I don't know his background otherwise. When I met Frey, I was like, this guy's got sort of that thing. He's got charisma. And I invited him to do this. He had never done a clown class. I put him on stage in a live directs. I explained before the show, all you need to do is just try to do the prompt. And this guy comes out and whatever the prompt was, he just choose one thing and he would just do it with all his heart and crushed. It was, again, one of those moments where it's like, are we just ruining people by teaching them? Like, I was like, it's my job just to confuse people because he went out with another student of mine named Jordan and they just did the simplest things full bodied. And the audience was so grateful the lesson is you have too many tools, Jim. You have too many ways to serve a scene. You have too many ways to move things forward when what you need to do is just something and not worry about the 400 other somethings that are coming or what else you could do. And that is one of the hardest things for someone with your level of training to embrace because it does feel like it flies in the convention of everything that has given you success and made you the improviser that you are, that you can go out and do smoke shows and other shows and every show is completely different and that you can bring different energies and you can choose in the moment. And now we're asking you to just rest everything on one thing. I remember, so Kevin was, Kevin Prieger was my uh, teacher in the two clown classes I took. He's great. I love Was him. this through Idiot or was this Kevin's classes? Through Idiot. He was saying, he was like, yeah, you're going to learn, you'll figure out like what your bag of tricks are that you lean on. And I was I was like kind of offended. Like I was like, bag of tricks, dude. This is like this is just me breathing. Like I don't I don't rely on tricks. One of there was one huge trick that I didn't realize that I had because it was so ingrained and interwoven into like my onstage fiber. I didn't realize how thick of a fourth wall I had built that was so invisible. Even I had couldn't see it anymore. And it wasn't until a clown audience or people in my clown class, it might as well be opaque to them. My trick is that I'm convincing you, the audience, that I am an open book and that I am as vulnerable as they get. Yeah, I'm an open book, but I'm the one handing out the books, you know? So like I, you get the book I give you. With a bookmark too. Like it's like, and read this part of the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Because I was like, I have failed. I have, I've been booed. I've been, you know, all, all those things. I was like, I'm not really afraid of any audience. I've, I've, you know, I've been doing shitty improv, you know, on the dance floor of this Jewish wedding while everyone's trying to dance or at 9 a.m. in a bank in Munich for German bankers. You know what I mean? Like no laps, you know, like 
I've been in these weird shows. I know what it feels like. It's fine. But the failure that I was experiencing when I failed in clown was a different kind of failure. And it really was like, oh my God. And that's what illuminated that wall, that fourth wall. And I was like, that, I didn't realize that was a trick. I didn't realize that was a trick in my bag is trying to convince the audience that I'm something different. Sort of like a Pope Mobile moment, right? You're like, here I am, a man of the people behind um, four inch bulletproof glass. Yeah. <laughs> like you're like, no, I'm here. I'm 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 inches away from you. You couldn't yeah. touch me if you had a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> it is so hard for people who haven't dipped their toes to understand the difference between letting an audience judge a show and letting an audience judge you. The protection of, well, you don't like the show that we're doing. As opposed to, oh, you don't like what I'm doing. You don't like me in this moment, which is where all the power lies. Because if you let an audience simply judge a show, then they also have separation. They could be like, I'm going to boo this show. I'm going to boo this presentation. But when they have to openly say, I don't like you, then we get that empathetic response where if they're a good audience or good people, they feel guilt. Like if we let them tell us we don't like it, and then we look at them and go, I'll try harder. Then they're like, ah. Ah, man, I didn't want to make them feel, okay, well, I'll try harder too. Like, and then that's when we can start to pull back a little, like not pull back in terms of our effort, but we can keep lowering the bar, how much we can lower the bar and still have them cheer us on, which is such a fun game between an audience and a performer where it's like, well, how much do you love me? Now that you've hurt my feelings, now that you've destroyed me, what are you willing to do to build me back up? And this is the psychology that I think eludes a lot of the clowns you're working with now. And a lot of people at the five years and under range, and probably this will hurt some people's feelings. I feel like we have an intimacy problem in Los Angeles. There's a lot of acting out. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of really fun, silly ideas. But the idea that these ideas are being presented to create a level of deep intimacy with the audience, that we're really giving the audience permission to shatter what we're working on or tell us that we're not good enough or our ideas are less than like that is something that only someone you care about can tell you and it matters i had a guy this is a sidebar have you ever seen clown zoo when i do the full father bone makeup yeah okay last time i did it uh, uh, you'd had it i had done a show at the park and when i got home my dog was desperate in need of a pee, a pee break and so i was like you know what normally i would shower and change I just grab my little dog. I bring her outside. I'm in full fishnets and my tight little camo shorts and my beret and my white beard makeup. I start walking my dog in this area that we walked when you came over and we hung out. It's a path around the LA River. And I'm walking and all of a sudden there's someone on the other side of the LA River who's kind of walking with me. They just start dropping homophobic slurs, the F word of homophobic slurs they're just screaming at the top of their lungs. And I'm looking around being like, some poor person is really getting yelled at right now. <laughs> I've been dressed like this for four hours. I, I don't even know. I'm, you know, I'm like, oh man. I was like, that's not right. That's not right. But then it was like, oh, here I am with my 20 pound dog dressed in full. I, I like to call it authority drag, but like that has no effect on me. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, this person who... I'm 100% sure is one of the Section 8 people at a hotel that's like two blocks from my place that probably needs just medication and having a tough day. Like, I'm not like, oh, man, like he's destroyed me. But if you're 
parents say something like, you really didn't turn out the way I wanted. Devastating. It's like scooping out your heart with a melon baller. And that's the power we need to give the audience, or at least a perceived power. Your words, your opinions, your glances, they just profoundly affect us. I'm lucky to be surrounded by a lot of great clowns who understand this, but I'd say the majority of clowns in LA are definitely more excited about the chaos. You see mm. now a ton of these shows. So rarely do I see the younger clowns really trying to capture just that moment of vulnerability of being seen. And they're so much more interested in the shock and awe approach. That vulnerability, you know, it's funny because like I found in clown class, maybe you, maybe this happens a lot. Every time I would fail, it was, <laughs> it would like turn into like, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know. And then I'd end up sharing something unrelated that was super personal from my past. <laughs> like it would turn into my own personal AA meeting. <laughs> but it was like this sense of, I wanted them to really know me. This is not failure. Let me tell you about failure. You kids want to know what it's like to fail, right? Because we're also older. We don't mention it, but just in general, we're always just dealing with that. Sometimes we have 25 years on the person who's on stage with us. We just kind of accept it because we've been in this world a bunch of times. But I could see you being like, oh, you kids think what? You have some college loans. Let me tell you a story. Yeah. I mean, like, I want to be like, hey, you, you know those times when you're like, oh, my God, I wish I could just disappear. Well, I have had those times and I look back and go like, holy shit, that's nothing. What? That is nothing. It's like I've had a bad acid trip, like where the kind where we other people say they've had a bad acid trip. I'm like, no, you didn't. You were in the bathroom for 15 minutes and thought people didn't like you. I had a bad acid trip. It's that sense of vulnerability. Like, I, And Kevin and I were like working together about trying to who asked him to help me with a one-person show. My first two and a half years of being sober, I would have these imaginary press conferences in my head, not on purpose. <laughs> like, my brain would just, they'd just start, and I'd be in it, and I'd be like, fuck. It, I mean, it would be the whole thing. I'd look, be at a table, flashing cameras, and it would be all the people asking me to answer for all my sins. They eventually stopped when, in my head, I just took full accountability in these imaginary, I haven't had them in over three years. I know whatever I'm insecure about because I will just luxuriate in fantasies. For instance, something that keeps popping into my brain a little bit is I get a meeting with someone important in Hollywood. Mm. And this is very much improv talk, right? Like you have an important meeting in Hollywood. Like there's no specificity. Here's the Johnson file at this business. Essentially, they make an offer that isn't great, and I decide not to take it and tell them off. And what I've learned is when I ever have these kind of daydreams, what it really means is you don't think anyone in Hollywood is ever going to care about something you do again. That's me trying to gain some power over some hidden insecurity I have. Especially this year, I had Will on the podcast recently, and you're in the same position, I think, where I'm really trying to embrace autonomy. I just want to make the work that I want to make. I want to do the things I want to do. I spent 12 years as a working screenwriter. I did countless pitches. I wrote countless movies and shows that I didn't care about because I was trying to get that system to accept me. I don't want to be that person anymore. If work comes, it comes. But in general, I feel very lucky. I'm sure you do too. 
I do what I love every day. But there's always going to be a part of me that feels what I'm doing right now is a product of me being kicked out of that world. They didn't want me. So what I'm doing is really what I have to do because I didn't have a choice. I did kind of have a choice, but it's not totally wrong that my door wasn't being knocked down by these people. Whenever I do the press conference, for you, I imagine it's like, whatever questions they're asking, that's me. That's me asking myself these questions and wondering where I land on these issues. It's funny. I do have that feeling of, holy shit, is my side hustle my hustle? I wrote for a show... And then when after that was done, I thought like, well, first of all, I was like, oh man, now that now that you're in, you're yeah. in, you wrote for a show. Now you're just in that club, whatever that club yeah. is. And then, you know, that was like two years ago. And I'm just like, ah, you know, and, and at first I'm out of money. I, I got to bike to teaching improv. Like I felt like the universe went like, you know, who do you think you are? You get back here, you get back here. And it took me a little bit to get over myself and be like, dude, you can be fucking working days in or something, you know, no shade of days in, but like, you hear that days in? <laughs> it's one of your sponsors. It was. <laughs> <laughs> You're red roofing now, man. Texting Sinesta now. <laughs> yeah, it is something I enjoy. Like, I, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, by the way, because I still think you're hedging, right? Like, you get to teach something you're really good at and love to do. I do the same thing where I'm like, well, I could be tarring roofs. It's like, whoa, no, like actually so many people would kill to do this. Like not just that this is a better option than like grinding out hard labor. I'll tell you when teaching clown, and I have to constantly remind myself of this because I deal with the same shit you're talking about. I often feel like I'm changing people's perspective. When I watch people go on stage and fail for four minutes, and then just the glassy looks in their eyes. But then the next day they come in and they're liberated. But just like you, I'll think like, well, the reason I'm doing this is because I don't have a national commercial. Or the reason I'm doing this is because I don't write screenplays anymore. No, this is such a gift to be able to go out and create the art that speaks to you. Mm -hmm. that we don't have to sort of settle to be like, well, you know, the other option would be that I drive kidneys from Tijuana to America like, and I'm a coyote. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I'm not lecturing you. I do the same thing where even then I'm sort of middling. Well, it could be worse. It's like, it's great. <laughs> that sounded desperate. I might edit that out. Guys, I'm, guys, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Once I also realized too of like, oh, I'm not in the business of teaching rights and wrongs i don't just how can i make this easier for you i'm hoping for just tons of aha moments and be like oh this is this this can be fun like it isn't just me just up there going in my head the whole time on stage it's like and when i see like breakthroughs and stuff like that like i love it in that vibe the energy and when the class is over and they're all like like you know like a bunch of seagulls, like kind of, I'm not that inside. You know, it's like, oh, it feels so good. I mean, like even like Will and I, like when we come, we're trying to think of like, and Sarah Classical, who is also like a huge part of the three of us in this this world's greatest improv school. When the three of us are like trying to come up with what to like make decisions, it really comes back to when we don't know what behooves the community. Can I get weird for a second? Yeah, I was talking to. A buddy of mine, he, we were talking about the, how in AA, sometimes they have the central office lines. 
And so like when people call the alcoholics now in the central office lines, then you can get some fucked up calls. And like, I've had it where like some drunk lady wanted me to sing free bird to her. Cause she was, she was singing the words free bird to the tune of free fall. And <laughs> anyways, but just crazy calls. But afterwards I was talking to just a friend of mine who's not sober or anything. And he was like, what's that feel like to do those phones? I was like, you know what? Even if you don't get one phone call, you feel good. You feel good. Like, cause you were being of service. And there's something universal about how good the feeling is of being of service. If that's the closest thing that I can try to put my finger on of what quote unquote God is, that universal feeling, why do we all humans feel good when they've been of service to someone? That is a huge part of like when I think of like, okay, what does the community get out of this? How does this class feel at the end? Like all of those things of like, Getting to watch students succeed, like it's this rush that is just, I go home with it. I mean, that being said, I also sit there and I'll be in the shower the next day trying to fix student scenes that happened yesterday in class, you know, a scene we'll never talk about again. I'm still trying to fix them, but there is something that's so rewarding about it. So I also don't want to <laughs> shit on the idea of, of teaching like it is truly worth it. There is the old adage. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes there are teachers that you're like, well, you're teaching because. Right. But that's not a shot on anyone. We've all had that teacher or we've all had that person who their interest is being in a position of authority or their interest is being right. And there are teachers that are out there and they're trying to spread the word on something they care about, you know, and also trying to make a living at the same time. They both can exist. The community building, when you were talking about that, that really resonated with me because sometimes I feel like when I talk to my more successful clown friends who are just performing more, I urge them to do more stuff just for free. What I what I mean is, oh, just come in and do the free incubator before Catsby, the show I run. Just come do it and just meet some people. And it's not about you selling a class in the future. When you get into a cycle where you're putting good energy out into a community and you're building it, it really does build a certain type of equity you just see your art differently. I know it helps me because a lot of times we can't help but look at whatever we're doing, whether it's clown or improv or sketch, stand up, and that just becomes a means to succeed. But if we can give back, it's transformative. It becomes like, oh, I'm part of a bigger picture here. We get to work with more people. More people see what we do. The way an audience sees us, the way a community sees us is different. But I also understand that there's only so much time in the day. And so for some people, it's like, well, I'm going to spend time like you spend, Chad, running an indie clown show twice a month. You guys are running your show. Is it every Friday at the clubhouse? For yeah. World's right. Greatest Improv School. So you know that feeling. You're not making any money. You're probably losing money on those shows. But you see what you're giving people. You're giving them a place to go. You're giving them a way to get better. It's just good karma. I do very much believe in... The energy you put out into the world, you're going to come into contact with it somehow. Not like in a punishing way, because I don't believe in that. If you put out negative energy, well, it's out there. It's, you're going to run into it at some point. Good energy, creative energy. Like I got to be honest, sometimes that's hard to, to do because it's vulnerable. When I first came back to the States and I first got sober, and I didn't have a car for the first year and nine months, and I took the bus a bunch. When I first started riding the bus, 
first of all, if you ride the bus anywhere in LA, wherever you get to, don't tell people you rode the bus because they'll freak out. <laughs> if, you, if you get there and you're like, they're like, how'd you get here? You're like, oh, I took the bus. Like, Jesus, are you okay? Like, is everything all right? Like, well, someone will get you home. Like, it's like, it's fine. But I took the bus a lot. When people would be getting off the bus, they would thank the driver. But thank you, driver. I would get embarrassed for the person saying thank you. And I didn't understand why. And it was because I wasn't embarrassed. It made me anxious because they were publicly being nice. That exposed them in my eyes. And then I was like, you know what, Jim? Why don't you start thanking the driver? And so then I started thanking the driver and maybe take a look at myself. It's like, oh my God, I'm so scared of being publicly nice and open because it leaves myself exposed. It took a lot of work for me to kind of, I mean, really looking at myself through sobriety to be able to prepare those parts to make myself available to share in that way. But that's also your performance journey in clown. Yeah, it's everyone's performance journey, fear. Fear is what blocks every artist in every possible manner of art. Specifically in clown, the fear of being rejected, the fear that you're not good enough, the fear that you aren't funny, which is probably the most frustrating because no one should care about being funny, just care about being interesting and lovable. That's who we laugh at. When the goal is, oh, I want to create something interesting. I want you to be interested and curious at what I'm doing. Then it's very much about the audience having experience. But when it's about being funny, it becomes about the audience giving you something. Like, I want you to laugh. I want to be validated by you. So it's one way. Find a way that all of you can have a collective experience together. I talked a little bit about this on my last podcast. We did a show a few weeks back in Las Vegas. It was a one-night-only show for Formula One. Completely polarized the audience. Not because we were trying to be edgelords or mess around with them. We had just created a very dumb show that was supposed to be in a black box space, but instead they put us in a literal futuristic space because there's a space show that happens. At the, it's the Opium Theater. And we had all cardboard props. Many of the invited guests were VIPs for Formula One, which I say outside of yacht racing attracts the most wealthy and tight-assed fan base you could possibly imagine. A lot of Europeans, and you know from Amsterdam, there's a certain type of wealthy European that fun is fun is something they might read about in a book. Like they just they're just so not fun. At the same time, this show, which had 300 people, there were a lot of just people in Vegas who happened to hear about a late show, and people couldn't get places. So these were people from the Cosmopolitan who, because the whole city had been shut down, this was the one thing they could do. It was almost impossible to get anywhere. Also, circus performers who were just curious about this show that we'd created. And it became clear very early in the show, some of these tables, Jim, were $100 a table for this, I mean, the dumbest show you can imagine. And very early on, the audience was so polarized. Like there were people who loved how dumb and chaotic and the audacity to do this show in this space. And then there were people looking at us like, how dare you? How dare you? It's 1230 at night. And it was some of the most fun I'd had. Because it wasn't ever about being funny in that show. It was about a class war. We were so connected that it was like, I just want to give everyone here an experience. For the people cheering us on for getting dumber and dumber and for the people who are outraged, I just want everyone to walk out of here remembering the show for whatever reason and me to play my part in that. 
can't tell you how much easier that is, how liberating that is, as opposed to, God, I hope everyone laughs. It's just death. And you know, you've been doing this so long. I hope everyone laughs. That is one of the saddest statements that you could ever make. <laughs> we used to do, I've done so many like corporate gigs, you know, like that. When I first started doing them, it, it would be that kind of thing of like, God, I hope this doesn't suck. But then it's kind of like, it, it's kind of not up to me. Like there's so many variables. There's so many, whether it's the space, are they eating? Are they standing? Are they like, there's so many just things that could be going on that it's like, all I got is what we came here to do. When you kind of just realize like, hey, drop the expectation and just live in the moment. And if they're not into it, it's not about, continuing to make a show that they're not into but the restraints are off to make bolder choices not fuck you choices but just bolder choices because i I have the freedom to do so you're you're already on the fence lukewarm it took me a while to realize that and it was one of our cast members he left and he came back for a summer and i was like what do you miss the most he goes you know what i noticed this how crazy but it's the corporate shows. <laughs> I miss the corporate shows because I'll never do those types of things again. They were so specific. Every one was so unique. It's a bonding with that cast, that tech. And once once I heard it like that, all of a sudden it was like, Marianne, why am I going into this being like, I better not walk out of here and victim again. I put myself in that prison. Also, I do feel that sometimes we default to surviving in improv mm. when we're coming up because it's just the way you train. You're like, can I just get through a 15 minute set and have it be semi cohesive and not embarrass myself? We just get into this space of, all right, I'm here. Can I just get through this and not have anyone hate me? And it's like, what a wasted opportunity. That's all you want to do is tread water. You just want to make sure you don't drown. I'd rather sink like a stone. I'd rather have some fun. And if you can win, and I'd say this is the clown part. Maybe it's just a custodian that's in there with all these rich pricks that's like, isn't this great? He's making them all miserable. I had a show I did years ago at a Japanese retirement home. <laughs> I was part of Jetso with Juzo Yoshida. So we had like a Japanese theme and we would dress in Samways. And my writing partner at the time had found out that there was this Japanese senior home for Japanese nationals, by the way. So these were people from Japan, final years of their life. And we're talking as old as you can imagine. This is up in Pacoima. And so we decided we we're going to come do these two shows as Jetso. And my writing partner, who was starting to experiment as a director, was like, let me document it. And we went in and they were as old as you can imagine. The weeks leading up to this, Juzo Yoshida must have said to me a hundred times, because he's a little OCD, whatever you do, don't do anything that's like homoerotic. He says, these are very traditional Japanese people. And don't do anything with death because they're very old. And I was like, Juzo, that makes sense to me. But you've told me this a million times. I get it. We come in. They put us in this day room, light flooding in, like the worst possible way you could perform. And they're all at the end of lunch. And they're just sitting around, half of them in wheelchairs or scooters. And we do the first show. No, we didn't finish the first show. We were in the last couple minutes of it. Often in Jetso, I would leave and let Juzo be alone, or he would leave and let me be alone. It was like one of the things that set us apart was just the idea that we would solo improvise for sometimes five minutes. If, if the person was doing well, the other person would just let them ride. 
the first show is going really well. And I remember it was something like a mermaid and a shark were going to get married. And so I come back out and Juzo has been preparing as the shark to get married. I start playing two roles of like the preacher and the mermaid. And then Juzo jumps in as the preacher and goes, you may now kiss the bride. And I'm looking at him like, you told me we weren't supposed to do anything. And, and he's just like, you may now kiss the bride. So we kiss and the place, which was politely laughing, goes cold, ice cold. Juzo then starts doing something else and I leave him alone again because I'm like, oh man, that was really crazy. And when I come back out, he is committing seppuku. I don't know how he got there, but he is now within two minutes breaking the two rules he told me absolutely not to break. By the way, very realistically disemboweling himself in front of all these octogenarians. We still have a second show. So we're like, should we even do it? Because they were so mad. So we come out and Juzo starts the show with a monologue in Japanese. Who knows what he said, but he was really doing his best. They could give a shit. They did not like us. And then I come out and I'm like, let's just dance and be fun. You know, so they hated it. And at one point in the middle of this show, an old woman on one of those electric scooters is trying to figure out a way to leave. And it's like, and it's one of the slowest scooters. And she has to ride through the staging area where we are. And there's video of this. It's on YouTube. I have to find the link. My writing partner put it on of just this old woman slowly riding through our show. <laughs> and I remember I was panicked and like, this is terrible until I looked past the sea of tables where all the people who lived there were to all the nurses and doctors and orderlies. They were dying. <laughs> they were falling off their bench. They were like having the time of their life watching us bomb. And I was like, all right, that's good for me. I was like, these people are going to tell their friends and families about this disaster. I was like, I gave, like, I win. You know, like the, the other people, let's be honest, Jim, they're not going to be around very long. These were young and healthy. <laughs> to your point of your, your corporate gigs, can we just change the metric on winning? Is just winning that you and your friends are trapped in the worst show ever and that you're all looking at each other going, we're going to have this forever. I think that is clown. Clown is this idea of like pursuing love. It doesn't necessarily mean the love of every single person in that room. Maybe you just made the tech's night. Maybe the tech was like, those guys were so fucking fun. We do thousands of shows. That's not enough for us. So Will and I do a monthly show called Beta Beta PDA. There was one night where we were trying these bits. We thought we had thought them out well enough. And um, <laughs> we, we did not. But we didn't realize it until we were in them. It exposed how much we had not thought them out. So, I mean, like in real time, you know, like, and we're in each of them, we were using an audience member. These bits were so long, <laughs> were so long to just silence. So the, the second one was I come into the audience and I'm like, I go up to someone and I'm like, all right, you ready to do this? Whatever you say, boss, I'm behind you hundred percent. And we initiate a, a rivalry. And we come in and Will works at the bank that we're robbing. This, this dude was great. He was great. But I mean, we said we've given him nothing. Like, so he's just like, sure. He's just, he's down for anything, but we've given him nothing. And it is just forever. It goes forever to silence. The first one 
was I come out and it's a restaurant and Will is the major D and he's like, so I'm going to be joining him. Like, yeah, I'm here. I'm meeting a blind date and I'm waiting for a while waiting. And then he comes back and he's like, I, I actually with your dates here. She was in the other section and he just pulls a woman, but he picks this woman who is insanely beautiful and insanely younger than me. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> She's of age, but like just right. That just it's already like a new narrative has formed. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, fuck am I supposed to do with this? I can't. This this looks from the audience point of like I was like, yo, pick her, man. Pick her. <laughs> you know? And uh and I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Like I don't know how to I don't know how to play this. And uh and again, she was great. She was great, but I was awkward. But what was interesting, and again, this is all to almost, this one had a more last than the bank robbery, but not much. I mean, there was long, long silences. And I was talking to Kevin about it though afterwards. And, oh, because then afterwards we talked to the people in the audience. And we talked to the dude and we talked to that woman and her date and stuff. And they had a blast. They had a blast. And I was kind of blown away. Everyone we talked to in the audience, like, that was a really fun show. And we're just like, really? And I was telling Kevin, and Kevin was like, you're not used to a clown audience yet. They're engaged. They were curious the whole time. They're rooting for you. You were authentic the whole time. Like, there may have not have been tons of laughs in those bits, but they felt safe, felt like taken care of, like all these things. And I was like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. And since then, it's also encouraged it's made me, well, one, it's made us both think more about our bids, but two, that like it opened the door a little bit more to what is possible and what to mean for and what a clown audience, you know, is like. I would go though, as far as to say that's all audiences, if we let them be that audience. I did a UCB monthly showcase. I had done something at Stamptown, which had been at UCB that month with Christina Catherine Martinez. And essentially, it's this bit where it's a kitchen sink drama, but it's really an advertisement for a product. So it's a very grueling scene of a breakup, but then they keep mentioning this product, and this was the bit. And it's very clown. We're doing it street theater style, so we're constantly with the audience. And the way this bit starts is I walk into the space with a beer, and I kind of walk through like a belligerent drunk. And the reason this even exists is because we used to do it outside during the pandemic, and so it would feel like someone had just wandered into someone's backyard. People didn't know me like they know me now. So they'd be like, who is this older drunk man? <laughs> uh, buff older drunk man, I will say. What I would do is I would act out the choreography and the blocking of the scene that would come later in the night. So I would go through this whole thing and they'd be like, what is that? And then when I did it again later, they were like, oh, that's so fun. So I do it at this UCB show and I'm like, I just need like 40 seconds to walk through the space. I'm telling the hosts, I won't say the hosts names, but they're both very good comics and improvisers, but they're also UCB trained and they have a certain expectation for how the crowd is going to react at that space. So I start walking through while they're on stage and I know audiences, I'm not patting myself on the back. They were totally with me. They didn't know what was going on. They were absolutely curious. They were confused. But these two hosts, because it was silent, talked the whole time I walked across the space. No shade. For them, I'm sure they're like, the audience is silent. It's like, yeah, that's great. Because they're confused and they're paying attention. 
Nothing is happening because I'm not allowing for a release of tension. But then they were like, excuse me, sir. What, what's going on? I don't know. This, is he, did he come in from the street? And I was just like, I was staying in it. But part of me was like, God damn. It's like, just let me walk across. Yeah. And I do feel, and I'm not saying this is a UCB specific. I'm not saying it's PAC specific or Second City specific. Because students are insecure, a lot of these programs lean into, well, if they're loud, you're winning. Because students can't even comprehend the idea that if they're out there and it's silent, that things are going well. And then that becomes culture. The culture is, if you're doing a show, people better be laughing and tittering and making noise the whole show. That is not the best experience for an audience. Almost feels like work. That's like the CrossFit of audience experiences. It's like, you're going to get in here and we're going to, you know, it's going to be 50 minutes, but trust me, you're going to feel it at the end. Like An audience likes permission to watch and listen. And they like the idea that tension can build to a point where laughter isn't even an option. Like laughter is necessity. I will say when I performed at UCB Franklin, when I performed, I would say at West Side Comedy, a lot of the places that have more traditional programs, I feel that desperation a little bit. And I feel like it's it's not because people aren't good at what they do. There are so many professional, funny people there, but they've just gotten lost in the culture of the more laughs, the better. The, the more vocalizing of approval, the better, because that must mean we're doing something. I will say this too, like I tell my students all the time, all the time, I say, we think that when the audience is silent, they're telling us that they're not happy, but they never told us that we told ourselves that that's a lie. We've told ourselves if they were getting up and leaving, that'd be them saying they're unhappy. That's them telling us. That's definitely them telling us. Yeah. But like, just because they're silent, does it like, does not mean that, that they're unhappy. When Natasha Mercado was doing those Send in the Clown shows, which also were a huge thing for me clown-wise too, because like that also gave me more confidence to do stuff. Like because Natasha was at the Chad Live Directs for, for me and Will. And then after that, she was like, hey, would you guys come do this? And then from that, I did then a couple more of the um, Send in the Clowns. And then we did the zoo one with you guys that one time. But so that was also just like a an opportunity that was great. Very thankful to Natasha for that. But I remember like when Will and I did the first Sin in the Clowns, we were looking at that audience and being like, this audience looks like an audience that just came to UCB. Now, there are obviously some people here that know clown, but there are also just, it looks like people who are just came here to see a comedy show. And, and I'm seeing this in regards to what you're saying of like audiences are just audiences. I remember thinking like, I would have thought an audience shows up to UCB with an expectation based on what it's known for. And then if it was presented something it's not known for, then it has to be extra funny to get them. And I don't think that's as black as, and white as I used to. I do think expectation does have has its pros and its cons. Like, for example, like when you were just telling the story about walking through the audience it broke all the expectation, I'm guessing, based on all the other things that were probably happening in the show that night. But if they had just let it happen, it would have got to prove itself. It is one of those things of like, yeah, those first few moments are going to be awkward because it's breaking expectation. But then if you give it a second to, to just exist, then you'll see what it's bringing. I think the greatest enemy often for breaking the expectation are when students are in the audience. Because they're nervous for you 
or they have a certain thing they want or they think is the right thing. I think when you get a square audience, when you just have people who've come to watch a show, they're pretty open. If you are even-handed and strong-handed in how you present your work, they're like, okay, we trust you. Whenever you have a bunch of students or performers in the audience, sometimes their insecurities kind of seep up like, well, nothing's happening already. That's also when you get that, sometimes that weird cackle in an early part of a show. Like there's just some, and you know that's a performer. Right. And they're just like, yeah, they're like, there's like everyone, let's do this. <laughs> you know? But again, like our job is also to recondition them because to show them a show where patients can be rewarded and stuff like that. I'm not also suggesting that there aren't great shows that aren't laughs from beginning to end. There are. I've been at those shows where I'm like, these performers are just hitting dingers over the fence. Like they cannot miss. I love those shows. I would never complain about being over with an audience, but I'm much more interested in winning them back. I'm much more interested in taking them right to the line and then proving myself because I think they get more out of it. We've reached the end of this podcast, and I don't know if you remember this from when you attended the live taping. There was a tradition. In fact, at the live taping, one of the people there almost lost their shit because we didn't do it because we were running long, and then they made me do it. I'm going to ask you a question right now, which is, what is clown? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I do remember that, and I do remember the person asking that. Uh, lost their shit. They were like, that's this podcast. <laughs> I was like, all right. Just as a reminder, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but if you give me a perfect answer, one that I can tell my friends, family, and loved ones that describe this work and why I'm passionate about it, this podcast is over. <laughs> it's funny because like when that moment happened in the, or just when you asked that to, to Claire and Kevin and to hear that there were different, that all three of you had like these different definitions, it was like, huh, Ha ha ha. That was that was interesting to me. I let me ask you formally the question. Yeah. Okay. Jim Woods, what is clown? For me, clown is can I try my hardest, fail or succeed, to be as authentic as possible and the audience is the other character. That's pretty good. That's what I kind of look at it when I'm like thinking of performing clown. Let me take a sec because I feel like that's fairly succinct. Let me tell you why I'm going to keep going. Okay. Let me tell you why I find some fault. In my mind, the audience is not another character. The audience are themselves. Now that's a profound moment. I might put a sound effect here. I'm not great with editing, so it might just be a beep. It might just be like when you hide a word. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much. I'm going to, in the episode notes for everyone who is listening, Jim teaches, you still teach online and live, correct? Yeah, most mostly live, but uh, I, you, I also do teach online, but it's on our website. So I'll have a link to that website. There's the show that Jim mentioned, Beta Beta, that happens at PDA. Jim performs at UCB. Jim performs all around Los Angeles. So definitely, you don't, you're not on social media, though. How do people find out when you're performing? Oh, I, I am on Instagram, but I've just, within the last couple of months, ever started posting. <laughs> like, if you were to go to mine, it would look like, like this can be real. This is like a fake account that tries to sell you discount sunglasses, kind of. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is this has just been made. Yeah, all of a sudden you'll be getting messages that Jim Woods has added you to a group. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And then it's just like a bunch of squirt emojis for a while. And it's like, you look interesting. I uh, I had a great Facebook message. I had posted some photos from some show that I had done. And it was just like one of the comments was like, I think this is really interesting. I'd like to follow you as a friend, but I think it's rude to do the friend request. So if you would friend request me, I was like, oh, this, is, this is like such a like circuitous logic around it. And it's just like also not in my DMs. It's just one the only comment on this post. It's like so humiliating. Well, thank you so much. I hope to see you again before the end of the year. But if I don't get to, I hope you have a wonderful holiday. And buddy, you too. Thank you so much for having me. And for those of you listening, just another reminder, December 18th, Stand Up and Clown, the show, not the podcast, the show. Huge guests. I have a lot of big fun plans for that one. Please pick up your tickets. But until we speak again, my friends, Keep on clowning. And then I play music here and it's like really exciting. Thanks. And then we flex for a while. We flex. 